0: Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW, or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Witschduck, and this episode is my conversation with Sean Bottomley, Senior Fellow in History at Northumbria University. We speak about Sean's research into the court of Wards, a medieval English legal institution. While this may sound obscure at first, our conversation quickly explains the relevance of Sean's research, which effectively explores how different legal rules and their effects on property rights affect investment and ultimately economic growth. So without further ado, I bring you Sean Bottomley. Hello, Sean Bottomley. Hello, Nicholas. Nice to have you on. Sean, you're a legal and economic historian, and today I want to discuss with you how in an abstract sense, legal and economic institutions influence economic investment and innovation, ultimately development. So more specifically, your recent work has focused indirectly on the uh, British Industrial Revolution, which is probably one of the most discussed events in this context of economic institutions, economic development. Why are people so obsessed with this event of the British Industrial Revolution?
1: Probably only really speak for myself. It's... it's, uh it's it's essentially it's the beginning of modernity it marks the beginning of modern economic growth um a fundamental change in the human in the material condition of man you know frankly i think you can almost put everything if you really wanted to clarify the last 10,000 years of human history mm. i think you you look at it in pre and post industrialization so it's an important event and perhaps a slight gloss on that is the curiosity that it begins on What's a fairly small, rainy island off the Eurasian landmass? Um, it's an important event, intrinsically interesting, but it's also something of a mystery. Like, why why does it happen? Where it does, and when it does?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think people have really tr- been trying to come up with um, <clears throat> different, um, yeah, necessary conditions uh, different types of explanations. Why was it here? Why not anywhere else? Is there anything in terms of a necessary condition that was present? in Britain that is not present in in places where industrialization or economic development has struggled to take hold in in other parts of the world. One such factor, I suppose, that scholars have pointed towards are uh, property rights. Uh, What are property rights?
1: In in its simplest, you would think of it as the outright ownership. um, We'll be talking a lot about land. So let's, for simplicity, talk about land. The outright ownership of land, um, the right to exclude other people from using that property. But it's we can unbundle it a little bit more, I think. It's the right, like I say, to, to, to protect it from intrusion, the right to enjoy an income from that property.
0: There, there are instances right, where you have a right to, to, as you say, exclude others from it mm. and to gain an income, but you're not allowed to sell it clearly, because yeah. it's actually so, yeah. held in, in, in co-ownership or something. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so that would be, uh, is the earth is the right to dispose of it. That would be sort of, let's say, a sort of a working definition. And I think the reason why, and then there's the first sort of part of your question about, which I, I think is important, is thinking about an explanation for the industrial revolution that sort of not only provides a powerful account for why England industrial, but you also have to simultaneously explain why that factor either doesn't exist or doesn't operate yeah. in all other economies that existed before 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 England and let's say 1750 um, 1800 that's difficult to do yeah. for instance you might talk about which people have is they might say well slavery England was a capital starved economy in the 17th century the money earned on the extremely profitable slave trade that was one of the things that helped capitalise the industrial revolution I mean the, the, the problem to my mind with that argument is you then have to explain why well, why didn't the Roman Empire why doesn't the Ottoman Empire um property rights potentially, offers a way in, I think, to this question. And it's not so much that we're talking about uh, uh, strength of property rights in that you, you own the land and you can exclude other people from using it, because you know, there's been good work, say, on France that's shown that property rights are actually very, very strong in France, if anything, too strong, because they prevent them from, you know, they prevent land improvements, transport improvements, and so on. Um, what England, the sort of balance that England appears to arrive at in, let's say, the 18th century, is it balances Strength of property rights with adaptability. Um, I think this is work that Dan Bogart has done, and I think it's very, very persuasive.
0: All right. And the idea would be that if you strike the right balance, then people have an incentive to economically invest in their property, right? because they do not have yeah. to worry that it's being taken away from them by the state, for example. Precisely. Yeah. Okay, so where where does your work on this come in then?
1: Well, a partly well, a major part of the story is that if you're going to make this claim about property rights there's there's a problem with chronology in Mm. let's say the conventional historiography which has said that actually property rights in England have been fairly secure potentially since the end uh, of the 12th century that if you accept that chronology you have a problem in that well you have secured property rights in England since the end of the 12th century but it industrializes six centuries later um, that's that's a very delayed cause and effect. What I would say my work is interested in is essentially saying, kind of, hold on, property rights, um, if we take sort of a, a more expansive definition of it, property rights um, prior, certainly to the English Civil War, uh, let's say in the century prior to the English Civil War, so about 1540 to 1540, so property rights aren't particularly strong. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in this institution of wardship. Um, but there are other institutions that you could you you could mention in the same time uh, in, in during the same time period, and which I, I think have been under researched. For instance, the monopolies, the crown is for, the crown gives out a lot of monopolies of production and of trade, uh, certainly in the first half of the 17th century. But we don't have a good economic history mm. of of how these monopolies operate. I think the last uh, large scale effort. Um, in terms of economic history, of the monopolies came out in 1912. Oh, really? Yeah, so uh, we don't really know an awful lot. And I think uh, my suspicion is, is that once we start, this is something, these are the sorts of questions that say, like, legal history, historians have been interested in for a little bit. But I think if we had more economic historians, more historians working in this area, I think it might give us pause about how strong we think property rights are during this period.
0: Right, because as you're saying right now, the uh, received wisdom, I suppose, which is... Mm based on on this paper, the seminal paper by uh, North and Weingast, right? On the glorious revolution in the United uh, Kingdom. The simplified version of that idea is that, okay, there was this event that ultimately um, secured property rights from the crown and that then ultimately um, spurred investment, incentivized investment. Mm -hmm. Part of your work is, as you're saying, to try to complicate that story, to try to make it more accurate rather than not complicated for no reason, right? But <laughs> but rather uh, try to give a more holistic picture. So so how do you go about doing so?
1: Well I think the North and Vine Beang- the North and Beang-Gas paper's been much cited and very influential for good reason. But though relatively speaking, they're writing a long time ago. Mm. Um and they're writing at a time when there was probably less sort of I- empirical information about let's say, you know, about the relationship between say the state and the economy. Right. I think a lot of good work's been done by Patrick O'Brien on this, uh, certainly in terms of showing how much, let's say, how tax revenues are increasing, just and just how much. So, in in terms of, you know, from a theoretical perspective, I think their paper is still is still important, but from an empirical perspective, um, I think it's it's probably outdated now.
0: I see. So, so you're adding uh, to the story empirically as well in your um, that, research. Agenda. That's
1: that that's
0: that's certainly how I
1: conceive of it. By looking at one particular institution um, that existed under the Tudors and early Stuarts, we can sort of start to get a sort of a more fine grained picture about the relationship between the state and the economy. So like I say, when I talk about Court of wards, you talk about property rights, Um, but perhaps I shouldn't complicate things too quickly, um, too soon. But there's there's another issue at play here, uh, which I think wardship is a very good illustration of and that is that the late Tudor state, the early Stuart state, is exceptionally corrupt and decrepit. Mm. Um, The revenues that the Crown could be raising through, let's say, things like wardship, through things like monopolies, could potentially be enormous. And yet the English Civil War essentially breaks out because Charles can't pay for an army to stop an invasion from Scotland. So the fiscal tools are potentially there for the Crown to raise finances, but it's, it's, it's simply incapable. You can compare that situation with England in the 18th century, where it's essentially able to fund fund its way to global preeminence. So I think that we've spoken a lot about property rights. And we've still not finished that conversation. But um I think there are really two key issues here. The capacity of the English state to raise revenues and and the, the effects it has on property rights in its efforts to raise cap, in its efforts to raise tax. All
0: right. So you're particularly interested in the time before uh, the glorious revolution. The United yes. Kingdom. Um, could you give our listeners a um, idea of how exactly did the political system work at the time? Um, what exactly was the legal system that was operating, and how did the did the economy look like? Um, just to sort of give a rough overview of the, what what was this um, country like, right, or this kingdom like at the time.
1: Um- so in, in terms of the economy it is still essentially agrarian off the top of my head i think in about the year 1500 you still had 80 percent of adult males working in agriculture outside of london which in european terms is, is becoming a large city but outside of london i think the next largest town is norwich which has about 20 25 000 people in so outside of london you are talking about what is essentially an extremely agrarian economy still very rural if you don't live in london you basically live in a village or a small market town mm-hmm. in terms of the legal system. It's different from Europe in that you don't, it's not, it's not Roman civil law. Um, it's primarily common law, which is essentially a court slash judge based um, accrual of decisions in court cases, which informs subsequent court cases. Some people might cringe at that, but you know, in one sentence, I'd say that's common law, but it's not entirely that simple. Because you also have a system of equity law, which is much more free-formed, and there is, say, at the beginning of the 17th century, a conflict between equity and common law. I should also say that it, in trying to just simply describe something in England at this time often defies common sense. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that, that is, as briefly as I could, if I was to say in a nutshell, it, it, it's not Roman civil law, which is what you get in the rest of Europe, um, and in terms of the political system. So you have, of course, at the apex political system, you have the Crown and the Crown's Privy Council. Most executive policy, in fact, I think essentially all executive policy, is executed via the Crown and through the Privy Council. Um, the legislature uh, is part of, of course, is Parliament. That, can some, you know, that is sometimes called, let's say, in a consultative role and also in the, on the understanding that it might also be voting taxes um, with which to fund the Crown. And the fiscal system, the ideal was, is that the, the crown would live on its own, i.e. that it would be able to, to essentially fund itself through ancient revenues, you know, for instance, through the crown lands. Um, but that's increasingly impossible. And that that sort of ideal is never really lost. The crown comes into frequent conflict with parliament over trying to raise revenues. And you know, I think Conrad Russell, who's an historian of the Civil War, um, I think if I might sort of recklessly characterize what he's done uh that would be to say that essentially that that fiscal let's say ineptitude of the english crown is one of the prime causes of the civil war
0: right and what are the main expenses of the crown at the time
1: i mean the, the navy obviously uh, the royal household as well but we don't it, it's a good question actually because if you look at the sort of the fiscal records of the period uh there's a you know we have thanks to o'brien we have a very clear idea of all the income we don't always have a clear idea of what the outgoings are <laughs> um one of the great thi- one of the great things about the court of wards is i think it's unique in that it's a revenue raising institution where you can also see where the money's going out. Yeah. and it's to modernize it's you're almost pulling your hair out um because a lot of the money goes out to pensions and annuities essentially to pay off royal favourites i mean one spin on it you might say is, is that the money is essentially being used to buy the loyalty of the political nation. And in the sort of conventional history of the period, um, the interpretation is that this is something which Elizabeth does very, very well in terms of the distribution of royal patronage, royal monies. Elizabeth does an an exceptional job at this, but her successors, James and Charles, they're much looser with the purse strings. And rather than there being a sort of a more equitable distribution, um, it goes far more to royal favourites. Um, And that this is one of of the reasons why, why you know, essentially the civil war breaks out because he doesn't have the loyalty of the political nation.
0: So, as we alluded to earlier, you're studying the Court of Ward's and Liveries in this period. So, expand real quick. First of all, how did you um, choose this specific court, and what exactly is the history of this court?
1: Um, How I ended up, honestly, I don't think I could give you. I don't (laughs) give
0: you a good answer
1: there have definitely been times uh, because there's, there's so much material um right. i'm i'm probably gonna i'll be lucky to look at the tip of the iceberg there are times when i think why on earth did i start doing this <laughs> um and actually just a small thing um the records of the court awards uh, after the court was abolished they were briefly held in a fish yard mm-hmm. in westminster so some of them the this the stuff is very your hands will come out black wow. um <laughs> So uh, they're not always nice records to work with, but in terms of its origins, it's it's essentially medieval, and if anything, is an institution that's even more important in the medieval period. If you look at Magna Carta, uh, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth clauses all relate to the functioning of wardship um, in 1215, at the beginning of the 13th century. So, in terms of its importance it's, uh, in the medieval period, uh, it's considerable. And what it is 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 in this period, if you if you hold land, if if freehold land, you don't have a load of your rights over. You hold it of a feudal overlord, specifically the crown. Um, and you, you hold it of certain tenures. One of these tenures might be sockage. And, you know, that essentially imposes virtually no burden on you. So if you hold sockage land of the crown, you might have to pay a small minimum rent, but that's it. Conversely, if you hold land of right service, in theory, that obligates you, as, as the name would suggest, That obligates you to undertake night service.
0: Mm.
1: Now, the justification for wardship that arises in the medieval period is is that what happens when that land descends to an heir who is unable to render that military service? You have a problem if it's a child. Um, So the legal, so this is when we start to see the legal institution of wardship developing. What the feudal overlord is entitled to do is they're entitled to first of all to step in and take custody of the child. Mm -hmm. The theory being that they can. They can sort of raise and train the child to be able to render uh, the night service that they will be expected to render when they reach adulthood. The feudal overlord also has the right to decide the child's marriage. The idea being they can ensure that the child doesn't marry a familial enemy. Yeah. They also have the right to take custody of the land. The idea being that the income from the land can be used to pay for military upkeep whilst the, you know, the child is still a child. Um, and this system, it's, Goes largely into abeyance over the 14th and 15th centuries. Um, there are various legal devices which uh, are developed to um, to avoid it. But then in 1485, with Henry VII and the Seventh sort and of, let's say the re-establishment of central authority in England, um, warship is is sort of resuscitated, and the crown does this specifically for the revenues that it hopes to raise by doing so. That, that there's no, there is no military justification at this point for knights uh, for to warship.
0: interesting so at the time or i mean this is a relatively long time frame obviously but who holds land at this time like how is it uh, explain a little bit more like who these people are that are potentially uh, subject to to worship
1: well i mean holding land is essentially synonymous with uh social status at this mm-hmm. period um so that the largest landowner is, is of course the crown then you will have um, the peers um, or tenants in chief, i.e., those who hold land directly. Of um, and say, in the early medieval period in the in the medieval period, um, like said, so that will be made, you know, primarily uh, noblemen, uh, knights. By our period, uh, let's say, by the Tudors and by the Stuarts, um, tenants in chief, i.e., those who hold land of the crown, that sort of filtered down lower down into the social system. Uh, so let's say uh, gentry, may, they may very well hold land of the crown, in fact, more or not, they do. Um, and even yeoman, um, essentially, you know, essentially, essentially farmers, they on occasion hold land directly of the crown as well. So one way you can think of it is, is that, say, in the 12th century, the largest landowners almost certainly hold land of the crown.
0: Mm. Um,
1: and over time. Uh, smaller and more and more and smaller and smaller landholders are holding land.
0: Okay, so does that mean that um, a larger and larger percentage of the population can potentially become subject to this um, Court of Wards? Certainly. Okay, so, so how does that play out then?
1: Um, so what, what I've be able to do is go, go through the Court of Wards record and compile um, essentially a time series of the number of descents of land that are resulting in the wardship of the heir. So essentially the number of wards who are entering the custody of the crown each year. And in the 1920s, it's about 20 to 30 children each. So not that many. If you look at the eve of the Civil War though, it's about 150 children. So there's a considerable increase in uh, in the social, in the incidence of wardship over this period. The crown's able to achieve this in various ways. First of all, the legal devices which people, Used to be able to adopt to avoid wardship. uh Henry VIII essentially does away with all of that, uh,
0: um,
1: and that's that that's a fairly complicated story. And I, I, truthfully, not one I don't think I could relay accurately, sort of orally. But essentially, legal devices which had once been effective in avoiding wardship, that's all gone. The other thing which the crown does is at the end of the 1530s, is it seizes essentially all of the land held by the monastery. This constituted probably around about 15 to 20 percent of the whole landed wealth. What does it do with the land well initially it hoped to hold on to it so it would be a permanent part of the crown land estate but fiscal pressures force it to sell it on so what does it do it sells it on but wherever possible it sells it not in sockage tenure but in night service mm-hmm. so it essentially floods the land market with land that you know if it descends to an air will incur wardship of the air uh, so it does this in the 1530s And, you know, a century later, you can sort of see the consequences of that um, because wardship has just become so much more common. Um, And I think that's in large part because of this process whereby the Crown has seized land, uh, which incidentally, I think tells us something about security, property rights.
0: Yeah. And then it's resold it with this night service tenure attack. I see. When the Crown takes wardship through the court, can you walk us through how that process works?
1: The first step is, is that the ancestor dies. Uh, oh, the, the, the child's, most commonly, of course, the child's father. Um, but it, it might be an older brother or something like that. But the child's ancestor's ancestor dies. Um, the court maintained a network of county officers um, called feodaries, And they, yeah. we don't always have very good records for feodaries. It, it seems fairly clear that, you know, that they essentially kept tabs on everyone in the county who held um, land of the crown. Um, and if one of them died, that would be very difficult to conceal. Of course, they'd be in a position basically to find out whether or not the heir is of age. After that, they would, in fairly quick order, they would be held what was called an inquisition post-mortem. Um, this wasn't normally now we have a post-mortem to, to work out the causes of death. That is emphatically not what a post-mortem is in this period. Rather, the post-mortem is intended to, you know, to identify who the ancestor is, who the land is descended to, by what tenure the land is held. Um, and what its value is, mm. and you can infer from those questions that this was the post mortem was essentially designed for the crown to enforce its feudal rights, i.e. its rights to wardship. And then after that, you know, it, it kind of it, it, it depends really. Sometimes um, courts officers would take cust- would take physical custody of the child almost instantly. They would start collecting rents on the land as well. Um, in other instances, if the child was very very young, then they'd be left with the family. And then the next step really is essentially is for, is for the negotiation process, for the crown to decide who they're going to sell the child and their lands onto. Yeah. Sometimes, if the family is lucky, they're able to buy it back, and this proportion changes. So under Elizabeth, um, it's about a quarter of the time, the family is able to buy the ward back and and the land as well. But of course, if the child, if it's a quarter of the time, then three quarters of the time it's going to a third party. That proportion increases so that under the Stuarts, it's about half of the time. So, yeah, that was essentially the next step of the process to decide who the Crown was going to sell the child onto. And then, of course, the child would either be returned to their family um, if they'd ever left or they'd be delivered on to the third party. So you can see what's rather sad to our eyes is, um, is you can see the injunctions that are being issued by the court. And a lot of them are related to orders to the family to relinquish the child to whoever yeah. it's been sold on to.
0: Yeah, that, that is really quite crazy. Um, was that considered, or or do scholars generally consider this a form of uh, serfdom, or or how is this categorized usually?
1: Well, to modernize, it's abhorrent. You sort of you, you don't want to judge the past on your terms. We you need to judge it on by itself. So, all right, okay. So we, we can do that in the case of warship. Um, and there are sort of two forms of evidence that enable us to say actually warship was abhorrent to contemporaries as well. First of all, uh, foreign observers—they um, of course, because they have Roman civil law—they don't have a system of wardship. Um, it's, it really is only in you know, England, Scotland, and Ireland that wardship exists. Uh, and foreign observers are just appalled by it. Um, you can—I mean, for instance, you can look at the letters that Venetian ambassadors write back home. Yeah. You know, they just—they just, they think wardship is insane. Uh, they, they think it's, it's it's cruel and abhorrent. Uh, same also with the Spanish um, when they were preparing the Armada for the invasion of England. They also prepared um, you know, what was going to be their agenda of domestic policy uh, when they successfully invaded England. One of the things they wanted to do was abolish warship um, because they knew it would be a fairly you know, fairly low cost, low-hanging fruit in terms of security, securing the loyalty of the, of the political country, of the political nation. And then, of course, we have what English contemporary... The comparison they always make is to cattle mark, that wardship is essentially... It's, it's like the buying and selling of livestock
0: i mean i guess that's somewhat encouraging to hear i suppose uh, <laughs> but um you you mentioned um some statistics concerning the prevalence of this um of this tool but how relevant was it for the um crown in terms of uh, fiscal revenue
1: so again you, there are good records for the, for, for the court in terms of what its income is under mary and edward uh, so this would be 1547 to 1558, but with some volatility, it probably equivalent to around about 5% of total crown income. Um, under Elizabeth, that percentage declines, so it's about two to three. Um, and then it increases again, so that under Charles, I think it reaches about eight to nine percent. And on, on the eve of the Civil War, I think it's either the third or second most important item of income for the crown. But that's fairly significant. And certainly for, for the, the crown is so cash strapped that it, it would have struggled to do away with that without the monies that it raised. But wardship, in terms of its utility to the crown, also served a second, um, perhaps more important function um, than the the money that, that it was able to raise, was in that it was able to use wards uh, as a means of patronage for awarding royal servants. Certainly under Elizabeth, that was probably what it's, it's, it's sort of, it's indirectly, that's what its most important source of income was for it.
0: Right. But obviously, also the, it, it it tells us something about uh, the security uh, of property rights at the time, right? As you alluded to earlier, so how big would you say, or how relevant for the property rights climate at the time would you say was was this practice?
1: So you have a sort of you have it in a direct sense um, mm-hmm. that the land passes more often not to a third party. So what are your incentives when you have that land? You might only have it for four or five years um, until the child reaches their age the majority, when they reach the age of 21. So as I say, what's your incentives? You don't care about it in the long run. It doesn't belong to you. It's not going to belong to you in 10 years. Uh, so people who purchase wardships behave as you would expect. They essentially engage in asset stripping. Um, they overcrop the land. There are cases of houses being pulled apart so that they can take the building materials. You know, the classic example is cases of forests and woods being chopped down, so they can sell on the timber. So, in an immediate sense, and of course, the family is helpless to prevent any. Of it, um, in, in principle, you know, families and heirs could have been it could have prosecuted guardians for this sort of behaviour. But when you look in practice at what actually happens, it's essentially impossible. Um, there's a case in Kent where a child comes of age they prosecute the guardian for chopping down woods valued at about 2000 pounds court of wards agrees with them so they find the guardian 13 pounds mm. so it's, it's insane you you're never going to pro- you've just got to suck it up you're not you're not going to prosecute you're not going to go through all the trouble right. of prosecuting someone in court when you are basically you're not going to get anything back so so you've got that immediate sense um in terms of you know people's lands being laid waste. But you also have indirect ways in which I think wardship and the tenures which underpin it interfere, let's say, with the land market, um, or with you know, ways in which you might want to improve land. Uh for instance, lands which are held by night service, they sell at a 10% discount relative to lands held by socket. That's that's you know we, we talked about this being essentially an agrarian economy. Land is the major store of value. Um, put another way, you know, that's, that's a, the capital stock is being is being significantly diminished by the existence of of warship and the tenures that underpin it. You also, um, like I say, you have to tenure of socage, tenure of night service, and that, as a component of let's say a regulatory framework where land improvements are very difficult, this is an additional complicating factor, which again essentially prevents effective land improvements. A good example of that would be the drainage of the Fens, uh, marshland, just north of Cambridge. Now, when they begin the works in 1630, they're told that the drained land will be held by Sockage. They finish in 1637, and the Crown turns around and says, oh, by the way, actually, no, you don't hold it by Sockage, you hold it by night service. Mm -hmm. Um, You you can imagine how how unhappy you would be about that piece of news. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, and of course, you know, they've expended all of this money and they've just seen that the value of their investment cut by 10%, essentially by by, by the crown turning around. Um, so that's the sort of that's the sort of regulatory environment you're in when you're trying to consider, um, when you're trying to think about land improvements. It's it's no surprise to my mind um, that you start, you know, once you have major changes in the regulatory framework in 1660 and 1688, um, and what happens in 1660 is all of the tenures which underpin wardship, they're all done away with. That you start to see an increase in these land improvement projects going. On.
0: Interesting. Would you say that ultimately strengthens the Northern and gas argument? How do you feel like it interacts with that original story? I, I would consider it in
1: terms of their sort of their broad, their broad conceptual schema. I actually consider it to be very, uh, to be very sympathetic.
0: Frankly, mm.
1: I, I don't think you could you could call the Stuart the early Stuart late Tudor state absolutist. You would like to be, but it, it's. It's, it's not effective enough, but this isn't an environment where, um, courtesy of the constitutional framework, the property rights are particularly strong. There is an improvement when that constitutional framework changes in 1660 and 1688. The gloss that I would put on it is that, is that 1688. That's not the be-all and end-all. Right. Uh, yeah. Probably a more important event, certainly in terms of state capacity, is the English Civil War protectorate and then the restoration settlement 1660 in, in this respect I, I i i entirely agree with o'brien pa, uh, patrick o'brien in that it's not 1688 as such rather it's this whole half century of constitutional change from let's say around about 1640 to around about sixteen. and that's what's critical i would i would wholeheartedly agree with that
0: yeah that's really interesting i mean on the one hand you know i think you're um scholarship here ultimately shows how I think it makes on the one hand a very subtle point, right? That like um, different kinds of property rights not just in terms of their security over time but also in terms of what what exactly are the strings attached different property rights regimes. Mm -hmm. They have different effects on the incentives in, in terms of what kind of economic activity I'm going to be engaged in, right Because as you were mentioning, right, it's not that people who are holding these um, properties uh, for short periods of times in an in intermedi sense weren't engaging with these economically at all right because you could make the argument well why invest in the uh, in the um, property because you're just going to have to give it up well exactly but that's then incentivizes a very specific kind of economic um, activity right where they're as you're saying asset stripping effectively so would you say there's possibly a little bit too much emphasis in this literature on the security of property rights in a temporal sense and too little understanding of how these like specific, uh, these specificities of property rights law ultimately then translate into economic incentives?
1: I, I think that's very well put, actually. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I could put it better myself. Um, you know, you know, let's say about security of property rights. The land is almost invariably returned to the child once they reach their age of majority, which for males is 21. So in that respect, you could say, well, actually, your, certainly your security of land title, that's never really under threat. But I think that's I think that's narrow construction of things, um, and I think like like you say, once you sort of look at the the specifics of how it of how it's actually working, what the economic consequences of it are, um, I think you have a more nuanced picture and one that's certainly more supportive of what Northern Bindgas have to say.
0: I mean, you you, um, you cite this 10% in value difference, but I would assume that in some cases, you know, the value drops significantly more than that, right? Of a land title. If it's the case that, you know, for five or six years, someone effectively destroys the land to a certain extent, right? Like, I, I'm not sure that's really just going to be a 10% drop, at least sort of in my lifetime, right? If If I'm not really going to be able to use this land productively, for the i don't know for 5 years afterwards right because i don't know maybe the soil is completely destroyed or something like this um then it might be worth to me significantly less than just a 10% uh, decline possibly but the the problem the thing is is
1: i can in in terms of in terms of what sources are available i can only really look at land values or rather, the easy way in is only to really look at land values prior to, let's say, you know, the cataclysm of entering wardship. Mm. Um, so you can, so you can only really see, you know, this is it, it's the ten percent discount on the land when when you when you pay for it, um, which sort of equates to the chances of that cataclysm befalling you, uh, or rather, your heir. Mm. Um, you you don't have to worry about it. Your heir may do. Yeah, there's certainly be instances. Where you could lose a lot more than the equivalent 10% value of the land. You know, if, you, if you're foregoing five, six years' income. Conversely, there will be other times when you incur the 10% discount, but you reach an age where your heir reaches the age of majority, so you know they're going to be able to inherit it without any of these problems. So there'll be other times when you've essentially bought the land at a 10% discount, but because your heir is of age and hopefully their heir is of, as well, you never actually have to pay any of the consequences um in that respect wardship is, is kind of arbitrary really. right and i was just gonna say that there are cases of families where they enter wardship then their their child enters wardship and then over a series of generations oh. the estate's just entirely dissipated
0: oh wow okay are you able to report or document any other ways in which people change their behavior as a result of this um, institution in sort of possible anticipation that this might uh, happen to them or to their heirs, as you say? One area which, so the short
1: answer is yes, land conveyancing. Um, The buying and selling of land, um, it's been established that the transaction costs involved with buying and selling land is very important in terms of how productively it's it's going to be used. Um, It appears that the complexities of tenure um significantly increase the costs of conveyance in land in this period but i say that i've not found a really that's kind of on the to-do list really and i am not entirely sure how i'm going to do it either it's all very well sort of collecting contemporary evidence you know contemporary comment on it Um, but sort of now sort of dig in a little bit and look at the mechanics of how this is of how this is sort of increasing the costs of transactions that's proving difficult to do At the moment, I'm simply at a point where I can simply really observe the phenomenon, but I can't measure it. Right, that makes sense. Talking about the fiscal capacity of the English. Ah, yes, yes. Because wardship, you know, it imposes a tremendous burden on children and their families. And you would imagine that for what, putting it in simplistic terms, for every pound, for every pound monetary burden that it imposes on the family, you would hope that that pound is going to the crown and that it's able to spend it effectively, but wardship, and it would appear with the other instruments um, adopted by the by the by the Tudors and early Stuarts, is horribly inefficient. Mm. It's it's difficult to put numbers on it because it, it is so corrupt, and so much money is essentially ending up in the pockets of the third parties who buy wardships or in crown officers. Um, I mentioned the feodaries; they're certainly lining their pockets. It's very difficult to say, but you know, because of the nature of it. But certainly third parties and Crown officers are earning multiples of what's what's going to the Crown. Um, And the thing is, is wardship is not unique in this respect. Say, for instance, income from Crown lands. Contemporaries thought that for every £10, or rather for every pound that went to the Crown, £10 went to other sources. And this is repeated again and again in the sort of fiscal instruments that the Crown adopts. It's horribly, it's... Terribly inefficient, hmm. and war, warship is a very, very good illustration of this. Because, it like I say, it could potentially have been extremely remunerative, um, and that would have gone some way to allaying some of the political and social costs and the economic costs that it imposes. But it, it doesn't. It, it's it's essentially a, a sort of a, a gross means of wealth redistribution, um, where wealth is drawn from the gentry um, and goes to crown officers. Um, that, that's the flow of money here. Um, virtually nothing actually ends up with the crown.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, to what extent is this then also related to, as you say later, um, uh, political turmoil? Is that sort of like a major reason for, for discontent? Is that just one of, as you say, like just an enormous number of um, inefficiencies and uh, corrupt practices that ultimately channel the, that, that kind of instability?
1: Uh, probably probably the latter mm. um there's a i I'll put it like this there's a there's a very very rich historiography on the causes of the English civil war mm. and you know, I'm an economic historian it's not that's not really that's definitely not my expertise right um mm. but yes in brief you know there's a rebellion in Scotland at the end of the 1630s the, the crown has no money with which to put it down um it just cannot pay for the instruments of coercion to end this. Um, in an immediate respect, you could say, yeah, the, the, sort of the fiscal decrepitude of the crown uh, means that ultimately it's 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 in, it's incapable of sustaining itself. Sean
0: Bottomley, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions or concerns, please contact UWPoliticalEconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.